From the Chapel Hill Public Library, this is Recollecting Chapel Hill. History from the inside out and bottom up. Hey everybody, Molly here. This week, I'm flying solo, but don't worry, Danita, we'll be back in our next episode. This season, we are exploring the history behind Chapel Hill's monuments and markers. In our last episode, Danita and Mandela walked through that history in Chapel Hill cemeteries. But public memorials to individuals are embedded throughout our community, from headstone markers to street names to park benches. Today, we're going to walk the Bolin Creek Trail, one of the many trails created as part of the town's Greenways master plan. And the reason for this walk? Two memorial benches that bookmark the trail and the history behind these two pieces of public furniture. The newest section of the Bowling Creek Trail connects with the Tanyard Branch Trail at Umstead Park. I'm walking from that park to meet artists Michael Waller and Leah Fouché Waller. Hey, are you Michael? At a memorial bench they designed and built. Well, we could start with material, maybe, okay. and, yeah. and symbolism behind each piece yeah, and its material. Cool. Yeah. So the globe is made of bronze, and it represents Joe Hersenberg's love for travel mm-hmm. and for learning about diverse communities throughout mm-hmm. the world. And the, the bench itself is made of concrete, and there's a bronze inlay, kind of a winding water piece representing Bowling Creek, and also representing its connection to the other side, which is a bronze owl, representing Joe himself. Mm-hmm. Joe was um, a, a lover of owls, and that's a barred owl specifically. And the barred owl is sitting on a concrete circle, which also has the bronze inlay of the river, of, of the creek, the water. So it's kind of connected in that way too. And both the bronze and the concrete is resting on top of a aluminum moon. And the moon represents relationships and, and cycles. Mm. They're really beautiful. Thank you. Really, really beautiful. <laughs> this bench was dedicated in March 2018 for Joe Hertzenberg, the mayor of Franklin Street. First of all, he hated technology. I mean, in every, in any form. Um, he, I think, reluctantly had a telephone, um, but he did not have a fax machine. He did not have an answering machine. He had a, no computer, but he did like to sit around, drink coffee, and talk. Joe was, um, he, he basically just hung out on Franklin Street. I'm uh, Bill Webster. I'm, I'm with the uh, Parks and Recreation Department and been working with the town since 1980, and it was during that time that I I met new Joe. Joe first came to Chapel Hill in 1969 to work on his history PhD at UNC. He came from Mississippi, where he had spent the previous five years teaching at the historically black Tougaloo College, home of the Tougaloo Nine, those brave students who stage a read-in at the public library in Jackson, Mississippi in 1961 to protest segregation. Joe taught during the height of the civil rights movement, and he was actively involved in the struggle. 
So when Joe came to Chapel Hill, he was well-schooled in the strategies he learned from the organizers and activists in Mississippi. And he was also really active in Democratic Party politics. And in 1987, Joe became the first openly gay man to successfully run for political office in Chapel Hill in North Carolina and probably in the South when he won his bid for election to town council. Joe was a dedicated environmentalist and also dedicated to issues of social justice. He cared deeply about our public spaces. Joe became a staunch, though at times unlikely, ally to Bill Webster. Here's Bill once again. He believed in open space. He believed in um, trails and uh, interconnectivity. Uh, He believed in solving, trying to solve problems. and uh, we, you know, an example was when we uh, we were trying to figure out how to provide access to Merritt's Pasture. And if anybody in Chapel Hill knows Merritt's Pasture, it's probably it's like, in my opinion, it's it's one of the nicest gems we have in town. It's this beautiful piece of property, but has no had no legal access. And um, at the time, I I I thought I knew a solution to provide that access. And then when Joe heard it, he became a believer. You know, we had we took citizens, we took committee members on the hikes, and believe me, at that time it was difficult. I mean, really, really difficult to, to go through those areas because you know right now we have trails and boardwalks. It was not easy, and Joe would show up, you know, and he was very much out of shape, and he would wear totally inappropriate footwear. But he would do it, you know. He would, you know. We, would, I'd just worry about him every minute. I thought he was going to fall into the creek on uh, so many times. But he would persevere and he would fight his way through. And you know, we'd get to the other side, and then we'd get down to the business of writing up recommendations and having community meetings. And you know, he excelled at that sort of thing. But um, he was, um, he was totally dedicated to it. You know, I, I think one of my I think one of the best stories I have about Joe is he he contacted our friends organization one time. He said he had an idea. We had just built um, a section of the Bullen Creek Trail, and he wanted us to um, paint interpretive uh, like leaves on the sewer manholes along the creek, and uh, just because he thought the manholes looked ugly, so. I don't know. He he talked to everybody, convinced them, and then he he said, "And I promise I'll pay you back. You know, I'll find a way to get the money back." And it was a couple thousand dollars. So we we hired Michael Brown, you know, the the, you know, the muralist in town that everybody knows. And Michael got some students, and they went out and they painted these leaves on the manholes. And then years went by, and we just used to joke that you know, where's that check from Joe Hertzenberg? Um, you know, he hasn't paid us back yet, but when he passed away, um, he paid us back. Joe left a startling amount of money to the Friends of Chapel Hill's Parks and Recreation Department, over $300,000. There was one line in his will. I believe I'm remembering this probably almost word for word, but it was, uh, it said, to be used for the Bolin Creek Trail and benches. Joe loved benches for himself and for the community. 
Benches make spaces more accessible to more people. Benches are an invitation. Joe's Memorial Bench is a beautiful piece of public art as well as a functional place to sit, to rest, to reflect, to listen to the creek, or it turns out to skateboard. Here are artists Michael Waller and Leah Fouché Waller once again. Obviously the concrete is taking the skateboarding <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was going to ask how you feel about that. You you noted that. Well, my skateboards, um, okay. and you know, I, I, I think it's, it's not damaging it in any way. Um, it gives it a little bit more patina with the red wax. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm excited to know that there are skateboarders in this area and that they're, you know, I mean, I think it's using great. it I mean, in, in a I think way. it's it's great the skateboard on other than visually just seeing an object you know in space you know like a sculpture standing mm-hmm. there they're able to like lay on it or read on it yeah or, uh, tell the story about it or kids can come and look at the globe mm-hmm. you know it's uh yeah mm-hmm. philosophically I, I love how we it's have work we have artwork that anyone can see and enjoy mm-hmm. not just people who have the privilege to go into a museum or a gallery or right. a space that, you know, they might feel uncomfortable in. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something special about that. You know, we wanted this to be really tactile for the blind. You know, kids can learn from it. It's, it becomes an educational tool. Mm-hmm. They are to ask questions about the creek and Joe. And, it, you know, it really starts to mm-hmm. take on a different meaning mm-hmm. you know, than when you first conceptualize it and build it. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Thank I got you. my little hike right. in front of me. And, uh, Do you want us to drive? No. So about a mile and a half from Joe's Bench is Community Park, where Bolin Creek Trail connects with the Battle Branch Trail. In Community Park, you'll find another whimsical piece of public furniture, a bench shaped like two open palms. Embedded in its base are lettered mosaic tiles that read, and never cease to keep your weight for grace, lamp ready, palms open, L brown. That L brown, that's lightning brown. Reynolds Price, the great novelist and poet, wrote this about lightning brown after his death in 1996. He sported the perfect name, lightning brown, For 20 years, Lightning worked in Chapel Hill, first as a scholar of German literature, finally as a lawyer. And in all his aspects, his slim form was a mastiff battler for individual rights and tolerance and for the rights of the earth herself to be as unspoiled as humans can ensure. An amazing number of times, Lightning's hope for small decencies won the day in a region as likely as any to fail. This is an interview with Joseph A. Herzenberg, H-E-R-Z-E-N-B-E-R-G, for the Southern Oral History Program's new series, The North Carolina Politics Project. The date is July 27, 1995. The interview is being conducted at the home of the Joe did a number of oral history interviews with the Southern Oral History Program. You get a real sense of who he was from those interviews, his humor, his humanity, his quick intelligence. Here he talks about his friend, Lightning Brown. 
Yes. Well, I have to say at this point that, that I have to give a great deal of credit to a, a, a fellow gay Democrat in this precinct, Lightning Brown, who um, uh, was not somebody I knew uh, for the first several years he was in town. I mean, he was sort of a very interesting character. You couldn't, if you saw him, you could not, you, you had to notice him. He was just very interesting. But he lived down the bottoms of the hill here in Brookside Apartments. And he just badgered me on gay, and sometimes not so gay, matters. I mean, in a positive way. He was uh, you know, much more sophisticated when he moved here in, uh, about how you did gay liberation than uh, anybody else was. He came here in 76. And his notion of how you did gay politics was start at the precinct meeting, and get people to go to precinct meetings where they would come out to their neighbors and uh, who probably already knew they were gay, so it wasn't going to be a big deal. And then you'd work your way up. Uh, you'd pass a modest gay rights resolution at the precinct level. And uh, then you'd take that to the county convention. You'd go mm -hmm. district convention, state convention. And he really provided that entire theoretical um, framework for how to do that. And he spent a great deal of his free time in 83 and 84 doing that, sending out letters to every gay people person we knew anywhere in North Carolina, urging them to go to precinct meetings, telling them exactly what to say, um, and uh, some people actually did it. Not very many, but uh, not very few outside of the Triangle, and a couple of people in Greensboro and Charlotte and someone in Greenville. Um, but uh, I think it was really a very sound strategy. Uh, it's just that either he or we weren't charismatic enough to convince enough people to do it. So, as a practical matter around the state, you were outed by Jesse Helms? Okay, did you just hear that? Let me play it again. So, as a practical matter around the state, you were outed by Jesse Helms? Yes, that's true. But I see. I don't. I don't think it was a very good outing. I, mean, I think it was third class. It just wasn't. Um, I mean, you, you didn't say enough. Jesse Helms, the quintessentially conservative U.S. senator from North Carolina, who was elected five times and served thirty years in Congress, who also said this. Just think about it. Homosexuals, lesbians, disgusting people marching in our streets demanding all sorts of things, including the right to marry each other and the right to adopt children. How do you like them apples? You know the old quote, North Carolina doesn't need a zoo, just put up a fence around Chapel Hill? Okay, so that wasn't Jesse Helms, but it's so frequently misattributed to him, probably because it sounds like something he would say. He made his name in North Carolina as a conservative commentator on WRAL in the 1960s. Those commentaries railed against civil rights activism, the speaker ban, communists, Martin Luther King, desegregation, and the Federal Civil Rights Act. In 1984, Jesse Helms was fighting for re-election to the U.S. Senate. His opponent was the very popular governor of North Carolina, Jim Hunt, who was widely predicted to unseat Helms. The race got ugly. Here's Joe Hertzenberg once again. That night, there was a debate on TV between Hunt and Helms. 
And it was about nine o'clock. We were, we were finishing up our telephoning. And I said to somebody, you know, back home in Chapel Hill, there's going to be a group at Democratic Party headquarters who um, are watching the debate on TV. I'm going to give them a call and see how it went. And I called them, and uh, I remember who answered the phone, a guy named Harry Kaplan. And I said, Harry, this is Joe Herzenberg. And that's as far as I got. He started laughing. And, and then I could hear him saying, it's Joe. He's on the phone. And everybody was laughing. There were probably 30, 40 people there. And I, I said, Harry, what's, what's the joke? And he said, well, you know, this bizarre thing happened. In the middle of the debate, Helms attacked uh, Hunt for having people like you and uh, Lightning. And yes, let's talk about fundraising. The labor union bosses supporting Governor Hunt, not to mention people like Lightning Brown and Joe Herzenberg, Virginia Apuzo. At the time, was so the executive director of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force for supporting him. And he said he didn't explain who you were and who is this Virginia Apuzo, by the way. Uh, is she a voter in Orange County? Uh, some group of students at Harvard Business School did a study of the Helms Hunt campaign, which was never published. I mean, I was shown this copy, which had all these rubber stamps on it, saying, don't show to anybody, don't repeat anything that's in this. It was just a classroom exercise. And they thought it had, the gay stuff had to do with Helms trying to show Hunt was weak, uh, that he was maybe even effeminate, uh, maybe uh, he wasn't man enough to be in, the, in, in that they didn't have to tar him heavily with having gay supporters, but just a little touch of it uh, would be enough. Helms also attacked Hunt for his support of a statewide Martin Luther King holiday. And in fact, that fall, he famously led a filibuster of a U.S. Senate bill that would establish King's birthday as a national holiday. In the end, Helms won. He would go on to use similar tactics, suggesting inappropriate gay alliances and stirring racial enmity when he ran against Harvey Gantt, the African-American mayor of Charlotte in 1990. He won that year, too. Lightning Brown lost his battle with AIDS in February 1996. He was 48. His ashes were scattered in the slave cemetery section of the old Chapel Hill Cemetery. There's also, fittingly, a memorial bench there in his honor. So my name is Memzi Price, and I am one of the two nieces of Reynolds Price. I'm the elder niece of Reynolds Price, and he was a much beloved figure in my life. You know, Reynolds was famously a Duke professor and a mm -hmm. Durham resident mm -hmm. uh, for much of his life, but he, he loved Chapel Hill, and it was an important place to him. And he actually taught for at least a semester at, at Chapel Hill, um, and, and spent a lot of time here and did love the, the dining <laughs> the dining in town. Um, and I think that there's something, there was something about um, this time in our collective consciousness in the U.S. around AIDS, but, but it, was, it became very, a very personal and very local mm -hmm. story here, too. The poem is called Scattering Lightning in the Slave Cemetery in Chapel Hill. What white man on the planet but you would think to be strewn on the wide-spaced graves of human chattel, men and women, enslaved by the local faculty, clergy, some century and a half ago? 
Yet seeing the place in this driving snowstorm, old pines thicker than elephant thighs, a squat wall, jagged fieldstone markers, bare of names, to a few dozen lives, voiceless to speak the still inexplicable fact of bondage in a whole town chartered for freedom and mercy, you seem a fit occupant. Parched to essence by a fire you kindled, knowingly in the midst of a life already smoking, hell-bent on justice for the birthright helpless and the earth herself. We strew your sandy ochre dust. The two slim courts will all come to on frozen wind that blows you back against our legs before you settle. And I recall your last four words as you find your aim down toward the end. Am I there yet? There, lost pal. There at the least. Joe and Lightning's vision for a world without borders for a more open and tolerant community has always been an uphill battle. I've been thinking a lot about Bill Webster's description of Joe Hertzenberg trekking to Merritt's pasture in inappropriate footwear and out of shape, and yet he still did it for us, for Chapel Hill. What a love letter. Joe's name is also one of the 17 engraved on Peace and Justice Plaza. Our first couple of episodes took place at Peace and Justice Plaza. Listen back, subscribe to the podcast, give us some feedback, say hello at chapelhillhistory.org. The outro song this week is James Taylor singing Copper Line. It's a song about growing up in Chapel Hill, right on Morgan Creek, and Reynolds Price co-wrote these lyrics. It fits. I saw my daddy dance Watch him moving like a man in a trance He brought it back from the war in France Down on the copper line Ranch water and tomato wine Free of soda, turpentine Sample mess and new moonshine Down on the copper line We were down on the copper line